Welcome to another episode of the DBR Spotlight Podcast. We are your hosts, finally together. Here we pa- are. Pastor Evan, and I'm with... Pastor Hayden. I mean, it, I, mean I teased him out the first time, and I was awkward. I'm like, oops. He wasn't here. But yeah, he here wasn't now. here, but he's here now. A rapture didn't happen. I wasn't left behind. Hmm. We exist to make disciples here at Cups Bible Church of Jesus Christ by reaching people for Christ, teaching people to be like Christ, and training people to serve Christ. And everything that we do here at Compass, including all the podcasts that we do, particularly this one as well, mm. is to fulfill that mission of reaching, teaching, and training. That's right. In Compass, I'm just excited finally to have to be able to be here with my co-host as we go through the this week's DBR in the New Testament. Right here we have like the Old Testament bookmark, which I'll put right over here. But right here we have our New Testament bookmark. And hey, we're in March in Luke five to Luke chapter eight this right. week. And actually, we read a little bit of Luke chapter five today. That's right. Well, as always, Compass, I highly recommend a couple of resources. Get a good study Bible. We have two in the bookstore that you can purchase right now, even online. Oh, and also the Bible Knowledge Commentary, which a lot of the, my notes are taken from that commentary for you so that you can be equipped to understand God's Word so that God can help you apply it and live a life according to His will. So technically, if they have the Bible Knowledge Commentary and a study Bible, they could follow along with this video almost verbatim in some areas. In verbatim. Come on. There we go. All right, well, Compass, let's get our Bibles out. Pastor Hayden has his on his uh, computer, and I right have here. mine out here because I take some notes right here. and Call on the MESV, the there Mac English Standard Version. That was clever. Thanks. That was well done. <laughs> the PC people have to figure out their own. Ooh, PC ESV. There we go. All right, well, Compass, before we start reading Luke chapter 5, we actually have to go back to Luke chapter 4, verse 18. Why? Because what's going to happen for the next several chapters is everything from Luke chapter 4, particularly 18 and 19. Jesus goes to his hometown, to his home synagogue, and reads the words of Isaiah, and it says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, hence the baptism where the Holy Spirit came on Jesus, right there fulfilled 700 years later after Isaiah wrote it, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery, recovering of sight to the blind and to set uh, at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You know, this is the year of Jubilee in a sense. It's a great Jubilee where in the Old Testament you're going to read about the year of Jubilee and the celebration that happens in Israel where everything is reset to a, a new and where slaves who were, uh, were were slaves in Israel can now have their freedom in Jubilee. And wasn't look that God how cool that was? He is forecasting a great Jubilee through Christ. So why do I bring this up? Because right off the bat, Jesus begins to proclaim this. Now, he was cast out of his own town. They didn't believe him, and they began his uh, ministry in Galilee in Capernaum. And this is where we pick up in Luke chapter 5. Let's go. And right away, we have the calling of the disciples. We see it very similarly in, in Mark and Matthew. But Luke has actually the most detail of the calling of Peter. We see him fishing. He knows what he's doing. And Jesus says, put the net on the other side. And Peter kind of like, I don't know. I don't know. But okay. He does. And he sees the power of God. Now, this is where I mentioned before 
that Luke and uh, Isaiah are really close friends in heaven right now because Luke uses a lot of Isaiah. And and God in his wisdom and his ordination and providence kind of had the calling of Isaiah and the calling of Peter and the other disciples very similar. Well, so let's pause in Luke 5 and let's think back to Isaiah chapter 6. Actually, if you're able to pull out your Bibles, that'd be great. Uh, In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah... It enters into the presence of God and sees God almost for his full glory. And Isaiah's like, I cannot be here. I'm a man of unclean lips. He's essentially saying, I'm a sinner. What on earth am I doing here? Hmm. And then God makes him holy by having a holy coal touch him, and he's made now clean. And then God commissions him to go out into Israel to, to proclaim. Well, now let's fast forward to Luke chapter 5. What do we see here? We see Peter, who sees just a small glimpse of the power of God. And what does he say? Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. He's starting to see the gravity of who this person is. And when he sees the holiness of God, he says, I I can't be around it. But what does Jesus say in Luke chapter 5, particularly in verses uh, of 10? Do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be uh, catching men like Isaiah, Peter, and the other disciples are commissioned to go out and reach, you know, reach the world, but particularly to start with reaching Israel. And a couple of geographical notes there. The Lake of Gennesaret is also the Sea of Galilee and also the Sea of Capernaum. And so when you read that there in verse 1, those are all the same place, so you don't have to go looking that Jesus was somewhere else geographically. He was all right there in the same spot. And you bring up a good note. You'll see Luke might use some different words than maybe Matthew. Why? Because remember the audience. Matthew is writing to primarily Jewish Christians. Luke is writing to Greek Christians. And so Greek maps might have different names for the same locations that the Jewish people might call it something else. Like, for example, in America, we have the Grand Canyon. It's called something else, but it's not nearly as cool as the Grand Canyon. Or my favorite. What is it called? I don't know. That was a, <laughs> that was a terrible example. But I thought of a better example as I was explaining that example. Okay. You might say, what's the tallest mountain in North America? Uh, Mount Denali. McKinley. Oh. But that, that, the original name is Denali, which sounds right. way cooler. Denali. I say Denali. We did it. That we exactly. just did it. It's the same place with a different name. So that's what yeah. he means by the de- geographic location. Well, actually, people actually in Alaska call it Denali. Denali. Yeah. And if they had a letter written to the people there, they say, in Denali, for written people in Ohio, that's like, where McKinley's from, President McKinley. Oh. They're like, oh. <laughs> Look at us. I know. We are way off All the right, deep end. But moving on. circling back, Luke chapter 5, verse, in verses 12 to 16. Now we see Jesus' words in Luke 4 begin to f- be fulfilled. What happens is that he heals a leper. And what's beautiful is that normally lepers to say stay away because if, you, if they touch you, you are now unclean. Right. But what does Jesus do? He heals them by touching him. What is so holy and clean actually makes what is unclean clean to really show who are we dealing with only god because there's only two recorded instances in scripture of a leper being cleansed uh miriam moses's sister in numbers 12 and then naaman the the syrian general in second kings chapter 5 so how are they clean cleansed by god just to clarify you said the old testament not in scripture right there's two in the old testament yeah that's what i meant to say yes two in the old testament um, uh, only two in recorded instances in the Old Testament of a leopard being, leper, not leopard. <laughs> We're having fun here. Leopard. A leper being cleansed. And it's how are they a cleansed? Leopard, a leopard has spots just like a leper. Yeah, I know. <laughs> All right. But how are they do- 
by God. So Jesus doing it is trying to show that he is God. And and I love when we talk about righteousness, like wholeness, right? Righteousness that, that a leper could not be in the congregation because they were unclean. And just like we can't be in the presence of the kingdom of God because we are unrighteous or unclean, Jesus, just like he makes the leper clean, also makes us clean and righteous. Absolutely. Boom. Now moving on to see how Jesus' words in Luke 4 are fulfilled, we have in Luke uh, Luke 5, 17 to 26, the healing of the paralytic who was lowered down by his friends. And Jesus, seeing his great need, gives him his great need and says, your sins are forgiven. Love it. I love it. Right away, he says, this is why I'm here, to forgive sins. And to prove that he could, he had the man walk. Now what's important is that to prove that he could forgive sin. To prove that he could forgive sin, he he had the man healed to really show who he is, that he is God. And the religious leaders said that this is this guy's you know, they're thinking, this is blasphemy. In which ironically they're right. It would be blasphemy if Jesus wasn't who he said he was. But Jesus, to prove that he was, healed the man of his uh invalidness, par- par- paralysis. That's a better word, paralysis. Paraplegia. And had him walk to show that he has authority, that's going to be critical, authority to forgive sins. So then shifting gears into... It, al- it also shows uh, the willingness to do whatever was necessary to reach Jesus, like putting them coming down through the roof, uh, them uh, being poor in spirit, being hungry and thirsting for the right... I mean, the sermon being applied here is... Uh, they saw the great faith of them to say, I need to do whatever I can because I hunger for Jesus to make me clean. And I know we're reading Luke, and Luke's message is to you know to show Theophilus of a, an accordingly account of that his faith is real. But what Pastor Hayden said is actually critical. It's making sure we have all of Scripture in mind as we're reading it to see how it's so true. And so as we're going through DBR this week, think of the Beatitudes because they're going to be laid out for people who do respond, like right. Levi. Uh, also known as Matthew, who's a, a tax collector. Jesus said to follow me, and he does. He left everything. And as the the commentary of the new, uh, the Bible knowledge commentary talks about, the call of Levi was the culmination of the two previous miracles. And Jesus so, had shown that he had authority to make a person ceremonially clean and to forgive sins. Now, what, what has to do with Matthew? Well, Matthew's a Jewish tax collector who betrayed his nation mm-hmm. and has associated himself with unclean Gentiles. Right. Now, jo- now Jesus makes him clean and forgiven. Right. My uh, study Bible says that being a tax collector is a profession associated with corruption, greed, and sin. So that's exactly how the Jews looked at him. And so then Matthew has him over for dinner and has a great feast, kind of shifting right into verse 33 to the end of chapter 5. And um, people there were like, what's going on? Why do you eat with, uh, actually this is chapter, verse 29 of chapter 5, excuse me. Why are you reclining with sinners? And so Jesus is trying to make the point that, I'm trying to reach sinners. But the problem is that Levi, who is poor in spirit, understands this. Because he knew he was a sinner. The Pharisees... And you'll see this continually, don't get it because they think they are fine with God based Righteous. on themselves. They think they have self-righteousness apart from Christ. Which makes them really dehydrated, like salt water, <laughs> using your little illustration there, there. Which goes right into them asking, well, the disciples of John fast and offer prayers, the disciples of Pharisees uh, fast, you know, why don't you, you know, these people look really holy, why don't your people do what it seems right? And Jesus tries to understand, it gives them, under, to help them understand 
it talks about a few parables talking about the bridegroom's guests don't fast when the bridegroom is there with them. Uh, what does that mean? And so, well, I got you. I'll get there in a second. Okay. You know, the a new unshrunk patch of a cloth is not put on an old garment because it will shrink and tear and be worse, which I'll get to in a moment. The new wine is not put into old wine skin saying your old your old way of thinking things does not work. Right. Um, not with like, oh, this, I'm bringing something new. The Hatchel Jesus is like, I'm bringing something new, but you're missing it right. entirely. Because, right, the wine, and you cannot put new wine in old wineskins because an old wineskin is already stretched. And new wine Full actually stretch. creates a gas and it, and it blows up the wineskin. And if it's an old wineskin, it'll burst the bag. And so, what is old, right, cannot be. Uh, appropriate for what is about to happen. And not necessarily old, like, oh, Old Testament. No, their old ways of thinking right. were wrong is, is about to really burst on them. And then why, the, what's the, you know, the bridegroom? He's saying, we, we're not mournful and sad at people's weddings. Like, oh, right. no, I, I can't eat right now. It's like, no, we're at a wedding. We celebrate. We because eat. Because he's we're, here. We're joyful. Right. Because the bridegroom, Jesus, is here. That's why they don't fast. It wouldn't make sense. But there's coming a time. There is a coming a time. And it's right when, now. Right when he, when he left the disciples. And then they mourned. And then they mourned and then they fasted. And that's what Jesus is saying. There's coming a time where I'm leaving and I won't be here and they'll mourn then. But right now, they got work to do he's and trying I'm here. To, he's trying to give them context clues about mm-hmm. who he is and they're just, man, they're just missing it. But that's what sin does to us. We don't see it. And that's that's why we should be thankful to God for him helping to us understand our depravity and turn to him for salvation. Mm-hmm. Now, let's shift gears to Luke chapter 6, where we're going to see you know, Jesus, that he is God because he's declaring that he is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is flexing his authority for all to be seen. And speaking of, if you listen to the Cup is Equipped podcast, we mentioned how the Pharisees added laws so they wouldn't break the rules of Moses or the rules of God. So they added rules to the Sabbath so they wouldn't accidentally break the Sabbath. But in doing so, they were... They unraveled the, the law of the Sabbath. They unraveled the law. And so with Jesus plucking uh, and his disciples plucking heads of grain and rubbing their hands, they were like, oh, that, that's breaking the Sabbath. They, they weren't doing that at all. Actually, it was really okay for them to do it. Yeah, because there was nowhere in the law that said you weren't allowed to pluck grain as you were walking. And so Jesus shows the example in David. Now, Matthew uses the example of the temple, but we'll talk about David just here in Psalm 21, where David approaches the, the priests at Nob. First he, Samuel 21. First Samuel 21. When he uh, is on the run from, uh, from Saul, and he asks for bread reserved for the priests. And essentially... Because that's all that was left. That's all that was left. And so, you know... Jesus is saying it was okay for him to do it, and you know it was okay for him to do it, and you know that we're not doing anything wrong, and really I'm the one that is arbiter of the Sabbath, and I'm the one that actually correctly understands it and able to interpret it, and so right. I have authority over Basically, the it's, it, it is not unlawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. Uh, it's unlawful to keep good from happening. It would be unlawful for uh, the priests not to feed David and them because they were going to starve, just like it would be unlawful... Uh, for Jesus to not take care of these people's needs. That's what the Sabbath was really for, was yes. to make sure needs were being taken Which care of. Which goes right into the next the next Sabbath, where they brought a person with a withered hand to say, will you heal him? He's like, it is lawful to do good mm-hmm. on the Sabbath. And so really challenges us as a Christian. You know, we say, oh, Sunday's our Sabbath day, even though the Sabbath is now resting in Christ. But that's right. a, another conversation. There's still an application of Sabbath rest. There's still an application of Sabbath rest, but does not negate that on Sunday, oh, I can't do that helpful thing. Because it's Sunday. No, no, we are supposed to do good because that is resting in Christ. That is abiding in him, doing what he called us to do. So Jesus is trying to show that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. 
Now, that's where it gets, I think, a little fun. Now, now Jesus' authority is now expressed in Luke 6, 12 to 49. So, for the rest of the chapter. And this begins with the call of the disciples. And so, he goes up, I love it, he goes up to pray, to submit his will to the Father, who, whom he has called to be his apostles. Mm-hmm. Now, Jesus had many disciples. Those are followers, but not a lot of apostles because an apostle are sent ones who have authority. Now, that's the difference. that We, we as disciples follow Christ, now, and Jesus appointed apostles and delegated authority to them, his authority to for them to go out and proclaim his message. And I find it interesting that he chooses 12, and in my study Bible it says, having proclaimed and enacting the arrival of God's kingdom, Jesus now appoints others to multiply its effects, echoing the 12 tribes of Israel who had the law and were the uh, adherents of the law and the propagators of that law. Jesus now takes 12 people who represent the 12 tribes of Israel uh, that have that symbolic reconstitution of God's people around Jesus's mission. So Isn't that is, awesome? That's why there's 12. And this is why it's important to get things, resources like this to help you understand here's 12, 12 to 16, four simple verses about people's names. Mm-hmm. And yet there's so much profound truth there. And so, Compass, we just really encourage you to get some good resources to help you better understand God's Word so you can worship Him more. And then we have this His authority expressed through His teaching. He has the, it's the Sermon on the Plain. Now, this is where I want to pause and be pastoral. Now, there is a debate if this is the Sermon on the Mount According to Luke, because you can tell it's a lot shorter, has some beatitudes and woes, or if it's a different sermon. Now, there's some faithful men I love who say this is, might be the same sermon. Now, I, right now, my personal conviction thinks it's a different sermon that has, you know, similar messages that Jesus you know, would have used. That is one of the arguments, isn't it? That Jesus has content that he uses in multiple occasions. Yes. Yeah, so if you believe it is the same sermon, you are absolutely in Orthodox Christianity. And mm-hmm. me, I'm in Orthodox Christianity. But the point is what is being said. So what what is going on right here? Uh, first and foremost, I'd love for you to look at that. A whole crowd came. And in verse uh, 17 of Luke chapter 6, it was people from Judea and Jerusalem. And then the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon, you have the world. You have Jew and Gentile coming to hear, well, to be healed by Jesus and then to be taught by him. And so what does Jesus start off with? Well, he starts out with the Beatitudes that he's listed out here. And you can read them for yourself, but here's a, a comment from the commentator of the Bible Knowledge Commentator. There's a lot of commentator words right mm. there. You know, Jesus' explanation about the, uh, the inclusion of the kingdom of God is mentioned because they are following the one who has proclaim, who's proclaiming his ability to bring in the kingdom. They were staking everything they had on the fact that Jesus is was telling the truth and they're following his new way. These are the people that Jesus describes, the blesseds, the blesseds who weep, the blessed are you when people hate you and revive for my name's sake. Those people are banking everything they had that Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus' words were not a promise that, that every poor person had a part of the kingdom of God. Instead, his words were a statement of fact for his own followers they were poor and their and theirs was the kingdom of god they are much off uh, much better off being poor following jesus and mm-hmm. having a part of the kingdom of god than being rich and not having a part of the kingdom that is why they are blessed right which is the important of the beatitudes the beatitudes aren't something that you become so that you can have the kingdom 
the Beatitudes are something that you are in Christ, and then the blessing is also yours as well. Or at least, even though we talked about today, uh, you can be uh, hungry and thirsty for righteousness and not be saved, but you are on the road. That's how the that's where the road to salvation starts. And so it's not something. Oh, I need to become these things. No, it's blessed that you are these things because yours is the kingdom of heaven. And then he flips it. And this is where I believe this is a different sermon. He gives woes to the people, the other people, the mm-hmm. people who are not blessed. Woe because they are in contrast with everything that Jesus is all about. They refuse to give up anything to follow Christ. And this is why Jesus gives these woes, because they refuse to follow, as this commentary says, refuse to follow the one who could bring them into the kingdom. And therefore, Jesus pronounced woes on them because they were they refuse. They think they're in the kingdom on their own righteousness rather than submitting to the righteousness that Christ has to offer. All right, well, then continuing in his message, Jesus, with the, his authority, kind of reveals what righteousness looks like. Um, and I love that in the in right here from verses like 27 um, on to verse 38, he gives a list of seven aspects of unconditional love. And this is actually listed in the commentary that I'm reading right now. Rule number one, love your enemies. Number two, do good to those who hate you. Number three, bless who, pers- who curse you. Four, pray for those who mistreat you. Five, do not retaliate. Six, give freely. And seven, treat others the way you want to be treated. Now, these actions, that uh, is revealed, are not done naturally by hu- our human nature, but require supernatural enabling, a, a new nature, a g- God's nature to be in us to do this, because we don't naturally do this, but God can't, does this. And through God, we can do these things, like loving our enemy, doing good to those who hate us, to bless those who curse you, and so um, and I love my uh, one of my study Bibles says the ability to bless those who do this, who do mistreat you, depends on the confident trust in God's care and sovereign direction in the events of life. Why can I do this? Because I trust that God is sovereignly directing everything in my life. And wrapping up Luke chapter 6, this is the closing words of Jesus, very similar to Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount, getting evidence that it could be the very same sermon. But I love it. It's the same one. Though, those who hear my words and do them are like the person who built their rock on the uh, the sand or the, built their house the on rock. the rock. Excuse me, he built the rock on the rock. It's been a long day for us, but it's been good stuff. Those who built their house on the rock, they will stand, but those who don't will be like a foolish man who did it and it built his house on the sand. Built the house on the sand and it fell. And I like to read. The, I just like to quote the commentator right here. The you know, outward expression is not merely so important as obedience. It is not enough to call Jesus Lord. Lord, a believer must do what He says. Those who hear His words and act on them are secure, like a man building a house on a rock. And those who hear His words and do not act on them are destroyed, like a man who built his house without a foundation. The disciples had already acted on His words to some extent by following Him. And so again, Jesus is trying to. Uh, uh, to pierce the here, uh, the here that he's um, talking to, and for Luke, for God using Luke for the reader to say, okay, am I acting on God's words mm-hmm. or am I not? Where do I stand currently? And then right. we realize we're not. We would act accordingly. I have a sermon note in here from a sermon I heard a year ago that said nothing can be more dangerous than just learning the Bible and doing nothing with it. That's Don't a, just say, Lord, Lord. Nothing is more dangerous than just saying, Lord, Lord, and not doing anything with his words. There you go, Compass. Ooh, that's good. All right, well, let's go to Luke chapter 7, where Jesus' authority now is revealed that he's over all mankind. 
uh, the centurion comes, well, actually sends a servant to Jesus. And a centurion is a Roman officer. You can say he's a Roman major or sergeant. And he's a Gentile. And he believes in Jesus so much that he says, oh, don't bother coming. And Jesus was willing to come to heal his servant. He said, oh, no, don't bother coming. I know that if you say it, you'll do it. Right. And it's not like, oh, I don't want Jesus here. It was like, I don't deserve that Jesus would exactly. go through that to come here. I know that if he just says the word, it would be done. And Jesus is, is, is blown away with the faith of centurion because he's like, I have not found a faith like this in all of Israel. And this is really important. This is something to note that the commentator notes. The concept of faith is extremely important uh, in chapter 7 and 8. And it is vital for people to believe who Jesus is, okay, the Messiah, and what he said. And so the exercise of faith by the Gentiles also becomes prominent right here and through the rest of Luke, where one people have a heart that does have faith in Christ, but another people who should don't. Mm. And then this is where this is really cool. So here we go in Luke chapter 7. And we're going to look at verses um, 20 or verses 11 to 17. This is where Jesus is, Jesus is actually reflects two different prophets. Right here, Jesus raises the widow's son. Now, like, oh, this is a sweet event. Wow, Jesus is overcoming death. That's not the point. That is the point, but it's not the point. <laughs> it's re- referencing back to two really important prophets of the Old Testament. One of them being Elijah. And in 1 Kings 17, 20 to 22, he raises a widow's son. Boom. And how does he do it? He stretches himself over the child three times and cries to the Lord, Oh, Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And God answers in prayer. But it's not just Elijah. It's his disciple, Elisha, who had double portion of the miracles of Elijah, because that was his prayer request. And in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 32 to 35, what happens? Elisha raises a widow's uh, son. So how does he do it? He stretches his himself on the child again. You know, it says in dis- very vivid description, mouth to mouth, eyes on eyes, hands on hands. And he does it and kept on doing it. He walked back and forth and did it again. And then the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. So he rose from the dead. But then if we look at Jesus here, how does he do it? With just saying, young man, I say to you, arise. Jesus commands the child to rise and he the child listens to really reveal who is Jesus he's greater than the prophets right. that the behold something greater than the prophets is here exactly and so this is Luke trying to show and Jesus trying to show who Jesus is and he is God all right well we shift gears to Luke uh, 7:18 to to I think to the rest of the chapter verse uh, 35 and this is the you know the messengers of John the Baptist come because John's in prison and he begins to kind of question Jesus are you the messiah I think I thought you're supposed to you are, the messiah is supposed to usher in a kingdom I'm still in prison what's going on And so this is a great moment for Jesus to explain to help you know counsel his friend his cousin and um his disciples but also to help counsel the people listening and so what Jesus does is that he points to what he's done. He points his cousin who loved God, who's hungry and thirsty for righteousness, back to God's word. And he quotes uh, Isaiah 61 to say, again, you know, again, saying, this is what I'm doing. The, the, you know, the, eye, the bl- eyes of the blind are seen, the deaf are hearing, the demons are being cast out. 
this is the sign of the sign. And so he assures his brother th- using God's word, and that should that be what we right. do? Well, and it's interesting because even in that Isaiah text there, it's saying, like, behold, I, there's one who is saying, prepare the way for the Lord. And that, and after that it says, and he will... Uh, he will re- give recovery to sight to the blind and heal the leopard and proclaim the good news. And he's like, you were that, and here is me fulfilling that that prophecy of the Messiah coming to heal the lame, the blind, the sick, and to usher in the kingdom. You know, Jesus actually used the occasion to really commend his cousin to say, this guy is awesome. Don't think like, oh no, he's doubting me. He's like, no, like you know this man of conviction. You know, he just needed a reminding but he is the one that, you know, the Old Testament prophets proclaimed that he would be the forerunner of the coming Messiah. And he proves that by saying, what did you got to see? Uh, what did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind, which even I love in my commentary says that reed shaken by the wind suggests something flimsy and uncertain, far from an accurate description of John the Baptist. We're not seeing a weak, flimsy, uncertain John the Baptist, but we are seeing a John the Baptist who had a who had a question and he was struggling through that. And he's like, are you the one? And and Jesus reaffirms that like this man is the prophet, the, the greatest prophet. Uh, and he came and came before me to prepare the way of the Lord. All right, then wrapping up chapter 7 actually is the sinful woman coming to Jesus' feet. This is where you know, a Pharisee named Simon invited Jesus over to have dinner, and a woman came in and was just weeping and uh, used her uh, flask of ointment to wash his feet, and to, she was drying his feet with her hair and you know that Simon was just appalled because he knew who this woman was, woman was most likely a prostitute, and she is just mourning and coming to Christ. And blessed are the mournful, because they will be comforted. And so, what happens here in this text? What you need to see is that if the Pharisee Simon is contrasted with the sinful woman, the one person receives forgiveness and the other doesn't. And the the thing that you need to note is that Jesus is like, you didn't even actually have the courtesy someone to have my feet washed. And yet here's this woman who is so ashamed of her sin. She's not even looking at me and washing it with her tears from her face. And really to show Simon had self-righteousness that he thought he was okay with God and had no real need to be forgiven. But this woman understood. She realized she was poor in spirit. She was mournful for her sin. She was meek and humble and hungry and thirsty for Christ's righteousness. And then verse 48 says to her, your sins are forgiven. And so it it wasn't her act that forgave her sins. It was her trust and faith in Christ that brought her salvation. What a beautiful way um, that Jesus did his ministry. All right, one more chapter. One more chapter. Very we quickly. Very quickly. Luke, we got minus two minutes. Minus two minutes. Luke chapter eight, really, who truly follows the creator of the universe? This is the question going to be asked. First, you have a bunch of women following Jesus. That was you know, scandalous for the time to have women disciples, but Jesus is like, you know, men and women, follow me. And you notice the background of these women. They have amazing testimonies of God freeing them from their circumstances and their sin, and they followed him and you know, lived a life looking mm-hmm. forward to the kingdom, kind of like the sermon. Yep. All right, and now we have the parables. Now we have the purpose of the parable of the sower, like in Matthew, is to explain who is in the kingdom and who is not. And he explains the parable, then the purpose of the parable, but let me kind of explain the parable quickly. There's a seed. The seed is the same. 
This is the gospel. The, word of God. the gospel does not change to the hearer. Now, there's four different hearers, and they're represented by four different soils. There are four different hearers who respond to the gospel differently. Same gospel. It really is to prove this. It's not the fault of the message, but the hearer right. of the gospel. And there's one that fell along the path. And so before that, there are three unbelieving soils and yep. only one believing soil. There was the one that fell in the path that had no response to the gospel and just bounced right off and it was mm-hmm. taken. There was one that fell in the rocky soil. It grew a little bit, but when it came hard, uh, life got hard, it quickly, as quickly as it received it, it quickly ran away. It away. Yep. And there's one of the thorns. It grew, it looked, it looked strong, but because of the weeds, it produced no fruit. And what does all that mean? That they're not believers. Why? Because a Christian, like it says in the good soil, produces fruit. They hear it, they understand it, and they, and then it changes them where they grow 30, 60, 100 fold. Right. The first seed, uh, did not understand the word, right? The second seed is the one who understands it and receives it with joy, joy, but has no root and falls away. So it was never actually a Christian. And the one who fell among the thorns, they hear it, uh, but the the word is choked out by the riches and cares of the life, like thorns, choked out, and it proved unfruitful. But there was the last one, who was the good soil, and those are the ones who heard the word, and they hold fast to it and with an honest and good heart, and they bear fruit with patience. That's the life of the Christian. And you can see this play out through the Gospels and throughout the ministry of Christ. We see like the Pharisees were the hard-hearted people who refused to believe. Some people rallied around Jesus, like in John chapter 6, but then refused to stay because of his message. Uh, we also have people who, like the rich young ruler who were interested and wanted to follow, but could not accept him because of a strong pull of their love for this life. All right, quickly, let's All finish right. up chapter and then, <laughs> I know, we're, we're over. We're so way over. Luke is long. That's, I believe, Jesus, what? He says, a lamp under the jar. And so purpose really, of the, the purpose of this, of the lamp under the jar is, again, to, what you're going to do when you hear this message. Are you going to hide it, or are you going to go out and proclaim it? That mm-hmm. is the purpose and of it. And then Jesus' mother and brothers are? They're representative of that type of hearers. Those who hear the word of God and do it. And so they um, were were looking for him, but he's like, the people who really follow me are the ones who hear the word and do it. Now, this is where we can actually go real quick. Jesus then, for the rest of the chapter, proves that he's a ruler overall. He, in uh, verses 22 to 25, he calms the storm, showing that he's an authority over the natural realm. And what is the reaction of the disciples? Fear and amazement. Now he gets to the other side, heals the man with the legion of demons and showing that he is the has authority over the spiritual realm. And what is the reaction? Fear and amazement. And again, the great missionary this man became that Jesus sent him out. And a lot of people heard and believed because of his testimony. And then we shift gears to uh, Jairus' daughter and this unclean woman were starting with the unclean woman when he heals her actually by she him her just touching the fringe of his garment he heals the unclean woman showing that he has authority over disease his authority over the fallenness of the world and was the reaction for, for the woman fear and amazement and then finally he heals Jairus's daughter showing that he has authority over death and the consequences of sin and was the reaction really fear and amazement by the parents that Jesus is all authoritative over all things in the heavens and on the earth and under the earth. And so, and then real quick on why not he didn't let t- them tell other people because the timing was not right and that why was not he the didn't plan. let who? The parents say, go and proclaim what I did. He's like, no, the timing is not right. It is not my time or the plan just yet. And so, 
And then, and then one, one quick note real fast on the woman. What's beautiful is that she was uh, unclean for 12 years because in Levitical law, if you know a woman like this who was hemorrhaging was un- unclean until it stopped, and she's unclean for 12 years, and her faith that God could heal her is that what, is that's what saved her. And that's why right. Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Not you touching me, but it's your faith and trust in me that made you well. And that is the Jesus who is all-powerful over all things. Well, thank you guys for joining us in thank our you. daily Bible reading spotlight. Pastor Evan, great job. Uh, and we will see you guys next week for next week's installment of the daily Bible reading spotlight.